Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Bobby Kennedy Jr., who is a massive truth advocate for truth and has uh, an attorney and is engaged in a number of uh, lawsuits that I'd like to see if he can give us an update on, but also has written two books. He actually wrote, we both wrote the two most popular books on COVID in 2021. Bobby's was a massive runaway bestseller, sold over a million copies. The truth about COVID, or no, the truth about Anthony Fauci. <laughs> Mine was the truth about COVID nineteen. <laughs> similar, similar covers too. So, uh, and the, the, actually, we uh, you wrote a book before that that I never had a chance to discuss with you. I was going to though is uh, American Values. It was written five years ago. Really fascinating book that describes your. The history of you, you, you growing up and your family, and it's just, it was really, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Thank so, that yeah. book is kind of the, uh, the undercurrent of that book is the uh, 60 year fist fight that my family had with the CIA, um, you know, which is kind of interspersed throughout that book, along with a lot of kind of personal reminiscence. But that's kind of the, the unifying tale. But anyway, thank you for reading it, Joe. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, you'll be actively engaged in uh, standing up for truth, not only about COVID-19, but about all vaccines. Uh, and you were inspired to do that by a person who implored you to reconsider that, as I was in my practice in the 90s. And, uh, you know, because we're all basically propagandized and, you know, believe the truth of this, but this, these COVID lies have really exposed that, uh, that we've gone through in the last few years. So I'm wondering um, if you can maybe briefly review some of the victories you've had in your, your recent litigations and one of the ones you're most excited about. I know we're, we're sharing one together with uh, uh, the TNI, I believe that is the truth. <laughs> the, the, I think it's TNI lawsuit. <laughs> the Trusted News Initiative. So I couldn't remember the, the, what it stood for. <laughs> I always did. I couldn't remember the acronym, though. The Trust and News Initiative suit is a suit uh, that that applies antitrust laws against this really shocking agreement that was made at the outset of the pandemic. It was initiated by BBC, and BBC actually has these very strong ties. Uh, it's not officially a government agency. It's a government-supported network. Um, that is supposed to be have some Chinese walls between itself and the government. Um, but recent scandals in Britain have exposed how closely the BBC works with the British intelligence agency, MI5, and particularly in censoring um, uh, information on certain subjects, including public health. So, uh, and this is now well established. We don't know how much the British intelligence agency had to do with kicking off the TNI, but the uh, but the BBC approached 
um, a dozen top news organizations in the United States, including the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, the LA Times signed on for a while. Um, the uh, and and the social media networks, including Google and Facebook, uh, and the others, they proposing to them that they all censor information that did not comport with government proclamations during the pandemic. And they signed on and agreed to do that, and they continued to communicate very closely with each other. And actually, in the memo that the BBC sends to these other groups, in one of the follow-up memos, it says to them, you know, on its face, it looks to the outside like CNN and BBC and NBC and CBS are competitors. And the Wall Street Journal, which also signed on for a while, but then dropped out. It says, and it, it was telling all the, you know, the members of the TNI, um, we, people believe that we're competitors, but we're not. The real competitors, what it calls the existential competitors, are all these independent news sites that have provided a, um, you know, an alternative because uh, the the public, it says, is losing faith in the mainstream news. And they're now going to these hundreds or thousands of alternative sites like Joe Merc Mercola's site to get um, to get news, to find truth. And those sites are the uh, are the are the real threat to our business model. And it says that this is a way that those sites rely on the internet to reach their audiences. They, you know, as you know, and this is what it points out in this letter, that if you want to grow your site, you publish news that goes viral or that is shared on the internet, and that's how people find you on Facebook, et cetera. And it says, we need to choke them off. We need to crush them. That Those are quotes from the memo. And so it was really a, a way to make war on their competition, you know, for in providing the truth to the American people and to people all over the world. And we discovered this. We got the a lot of the sort of charter documents from this organization, and we've sued them under a number of causes of action, but including a, a Sherman Antitrust case, a, a, a Sherman Antitrust Act conventional antitrust action where you have big actors within a marketplace that are using their market power and illegal collaboration with other leading market actors to crush smaller competitors. And that is kind of the theory of our case. We also have a number of other First Amendment cases that I know that you're aware of, including the case um, against Facebook for censoring us and you know many other sites, but what uh, you, Facebook has a right. Facebook is an in, essentially an independent publisher, and they can throw you off and they can throw me off if they just if they don't like the way that you look. They have an absolute right to do that, but they can't do it if the government at the behest of the government. If they become government surrogates for censorship which is what they made themselves. Well, they, we've sued them and said, you know, then, then the First Amendment is implicated. 
And what we've said is that they were taking orders from government officials and that, you know, when we filed the lawsuit, we knew that was happening, but we did not have the positive proof. And now we do, because we have these internal memos that show, you know, Anthony Fauci elaborating on the censorship with Mark Zuckerberg. And, you know, we now know that Twitter had a portal offered a portal to the FBI and CIA to censor people who did not go along with the government narrative and that they were aggressively using it. We found emails where uh, the White House specifically tells Twitter to censor Robert Kennedy. Um, and uh, and so, you know, the, we have a number of those lawsuits out there, and then we have a lot of mandate lawsuits, and some of them have been very successful. Seems like when the government does this, as been evidenced by the recent exposure in the Twitter files, is clearly illegal activity. But there doesn't seem to be any penalty for engaging in this illegal activity. There's <laughs> no one gets unless you sue them. Is that correct? Because the, yeah. that's the only consequence. The only way they can be penalized is if they're sued. Yeah. And the penalties are not, you know, there's not going to be like huge punitive damages that are really going to change behavior. And hopefully we can embarrass them. And, you know, and a lot of people like you who've lost tremendous amount of money, you know, because of the throttling, because of the shadow banning, because of deplatforming you, um, you know, you're, it's hurt your business model, as, you know, as you've shown. And for people like uh, children's health defense that hurt our business model too. You know, if we can't reach an audience, if I'm deplatformed from from a million followers on Instagram, if uh, if everything we put on Facebook is throttled so that they deliberately make sure that people are not going to see it, it you know we have a, we have a donate button on our website. And if you like our articles, we can bring you to our website. But if you don't see them, you're not ever going to see our website and you're never going to donate. So hopefully we can recover some of our lost revenues. Um, but it's not going to it's not alone. It won't change behavior. Maybe by embarrassing them, we can change behavior and we can get a lot of other people to sue them. Sure. Had, had they restored your Twitter account? They, my Twitter account has been restored, although my, the woman who marries, who, um, who manages my social media account believes that we are now being throttled. She thinks that we were growing enormously, like, uh, like 50 or 60,000 people a month when Elon Musk was running Twitter. And then when he left, we went down to about 7,000 a month. So she thinks we're still being throttled, and she is the least paranoid person I know. Whenever, you know, our site is shut down and, and I say, well, you know, is it because a million bots attacked us? And she'll say, yeah, but it's, you know, there's nobody really conspiring against you. And I say, OK. And uh, but so she's the one who's always the one in the room who's saying, you know, this could be a a glitch. It could be because of, you know, 20 other reasons. It's not necessarily because we're being attacked. Um, and it's not necessary. But of course, as you know, it's all obscure. So, of course. You know, 
I tend to be less paranoid than most people do because, you know, what's the point of paranoia? There's nothing you can do if these people, I assume a lot of people are against me and a lot of people are for me. And, you know, I don't like, I'm not looking for shadows. Um, but as you know, um, it's uh, everything they do is, is hidden and it's meant to be hidden. Oh, you really don't know. And we now know a lot about how they're operating because of the Twitter files, because Elon has done this very courageous thing, which is to release all of the, you know, the uh, correspondence between him and government officials. And it was actually worse than you thought. You know, you had actually had an FBI portal. The FBI could go in and remove accounts that it did not like or remove posts that it didn't like. That is scary. You know, that is like against everything that our country was founded for. You know, we, we you know, our country was founded on the, the single most important premise was that, that citizens ought to be able to criticize our government, which was not true for the, uh, for the revolution, the, you know, American revolutionary generation. You could be punished for criticizing the king. And they said, we don't want that anymore. We're going to have a free-for-all. We're going to make sure that, you know, there's a ferment, that there's a million different ideas bouncing around. And, you know, uh, misinformation, for better or worse, is constitutionally protected speech. You know, there, there are forms of speech that are not constitutionally protected. Inciting violence is not constitutionally protected. Child pornography is not constitutionally uh, protected. Shouting fire in a crowded theater is not constitutionally protected, but telling a lie to somebody is, you know, that, that we had to do it that way. Because once you appoint an arbiter to tell what's true and what's not true, you'll end up getting one version of truth and it ultimately will not be the true one. Yeah, and that's, so, that's, that's what's been happening in the last few years. And I think anyone that has... Uh, escaped the last few years with critical thinking skills, and that's clearly a minority of the population, but nevertheless, it's beyond obvious that what's happened is just incredible pack of lies for the most part. And it, more and more people are beginning to understand that, and there's been a surge of apologies requesting amnesty for not for doing the best they could with the information they had. Uh, the first one was radically struck down. It was from a, a writer at The Atlantic, I believe, and just widely criticized as being inauthentic and unacceptable. And then, then they had another one. And I'm wondering what your take on these amnesty requests are when the, the information was more and more blatantly obvious and, and really indisputable and, and non-controversial. I mean, just the most recent, of course, is the lab leak, which is well accepted now. Uh, but but really, the more critical information is the damage due for the vaccines and the likely millions of people have died as a result of taking them. And it's been hidden. So what, what, what do, you, do you think that they're crafting a narrative and they're just letting these out singly and it's all orchestrated at a very high level and seeking to modify and tweak it so they get something so that they gain, regain the trust that they lost? Well, the crime is not that they were wrong. Um, the crime is that they censored anybody who disagreed with them so they would never have an opportunity to find out they were wrong. If they had to be, you know, 
in May of 2020, I published a post that said the vaccines can, are going to be DOA. They're dead on arrival because the monkey studies just came out and they don't prevent transmission. This is in March, in, yeah, May of 2020, before the rollout. I, I was like, they, we, you know, we were looking at their own monkey studies and the amount, the concentrations and numbers of COVID-19 viruses or, you know, SARS-CoV-2 uh, viral loading in the, in the nasal pharynxes of the macaque monkeys that they had vaccinated was identical to the loading in the unvaccinated monkeys once they were exposed to the disease. And so they knew at that time that this, uh, this vaccine could not prevent transmission. Everybody knew that. And yet they were saying out loud, it can prevent transmission. They had no right, no you know, reason to say that other than to fool the public. And then they were censoring people like me who were saying, wait a minute, how's this possible? How can you possibly make this claim? And of course, it's not going to prevent transmission. Oh, the crime, you know, is not being wrong. Anybody can be wrong. You know, the crime is that you're censoring people who were right or who had alternative viewpoints that prevented you from ever getting anything right. Uh, you know, I don't, I, listen, if, if I, if I had to predict what what's going to happen now, is you're you know right now it's very clear this isn't like a uh, you know a speculation. They're trying to give the WHO, the Biden administration's trying to give the WHO these preemptive powers to uh, to declare future pandemics based upon no evidence. So all they have to say is there's a pandemic. We're, we still have a pandemic now in our country. And when you when you declare a pandemic, not only does it give the, the government extraordinary powers, it gives the pharmaceutical industry immunity from liability. It gives doctors immunity from liability, which is accompanied, of course, by impunity and bad judgment. And it also looses up billions and billions of dollars in subsidies and cash to, uh, to promote the business models of those pharmaceutical companies. And so once you give that power to the, to the at least now we have an independent power to say, we, you know, we don't believe WHO and we're not going to go along with this, you know, global emergency. We're right now, we're about to sign a treaty that will cede that power to the WHO. So Jeremy Farrar, who was one of the masterminds of this, you know, of the PSYOP, of, you know, he was the guy who hid the COVID cover-up. He, he, you know, manipulated the Lancet studies. He directed all these virologists who believed that it was a lab leak. It came from a lab leak. He directed them to say that it, it didn't. And, to, and he, because of the control that he has over funding of, of virology and infectious disease and biomedical research globally, he was able to marshal, you know, these core groups of virologists who just lied to us, you know, openly. And then they all got payoffs from Fauci. Kristen Anderson got $9 million after, you know, to lie to us. Um, Eddie Holmes got $9 million. A lot of all of the guys who participated in the Lancet paper and, you know, the nature medicine papers, the ones that were then cited 
by all of the journalists in the world to say it's been proven. There's no such thing as as a lab leak. We now have their emails. And all of those guys believed it was a lab leak secretly, privately to each other. They were telling the public it wasn't. And they all got payoffs. Oh, oh, millions and so millions of dollars. Isn't, from, isn't that a crime, though? Wouldn't that be a crime? Well, no, it's so not a crime. Was, was It would be a crime if they said, uh, we didn't get this for doing research. We did it because it was a payoff. It was a, you know, it was a bribe. Uh, nobody will ever admit that, and you'll never be able to prove it. But that's the way that virology works. It essentially is a criminal enterprise. And they don't ever have to prove anything. As you know, they're never accountable. You know, they don't have to prove that vaccines work. You know, and yet by work, I mean that five years from now, you're more likely to be healthier if you got the vaccine than if you didn't. If, if you show me that, I'll take all the vaccines in the world. But there are no studies that support that. And, you know, they're able to escape the just standard safety testing, placebo-controlled trials, pre-licensed trials that are uh, that are de rigueur for every other medicine but except for vaccines. And so none of the vaccines, the 72 doses that are now mandated for American children through the Vaccine Act, you know, essentially mandated. In California and New York, they're mandated. But, you know, they're recommended by CDC, and then the states decide how to handle it. And in every state, you're enormous pressure to take them. In California and New York, there's not even medical exemptions. You know, technically, there's a medical exemption, but the you will not be able to find a single doctor who will write you one. That doctor will lose his license. So, you know, they're mandating these 72 doses of 16 vaccines, and they've never tested a single one in pre-licensing safety trials by, uh, in a placebo-controlled study. They have no idea what the risk profile is for these medicines, and they're mandating them to healthy people. It's not like a sick person taking medicine and say, okay, well, you know, uh, my, uh, my, you know, I'm much less risk averse because I'm already sick. You're taking healthy people with functioning immune systems and you're forcing them to take something that you don't know what the outcomes are. It's criminal. So since we scheduled this and uh, last week, actually, you had announced that you're considering running for presidency. And earlier this week, you had an interview with Jimmy Dore, who I'm a fan of, and actually was going to to interview him the day after your interview. But uh, I had a problem with my schedule, so I had to reschedule him for next week. So I'm wondering um, if if that's still in the in the cards and if you've gone any further into deliberations. And do you really think you can make a difference in such a corrupt system. I know it's a noble thing to do and putting you out there and putting you at risk of ending your life prematurely like your dad and your uncle. Uh, But I just wonder if you can walk us through that decision. Well, I haven't made the decision yet, but I'm leaning uh, towards doing it, Joe. And, you know, it's going to give me an opportunity. It makes it much more difficult for them to censor me. And I can talk about all these issues um, for the first time without censorship and connect them. You know, I've been an environmental attorney and advocate for 40 years. And um, 
And I saw the impact of agency capture, and that's why I was able to recognize it so easily when I saw it in the pharmaceutical industry. All of these agencies are captured. Um, the pharmaceutical industry owns NIH. They're they're wholly owned subsidiaries of NIH, you know, NIH, CDC, um, FDA. The uh, the coal and oil industry and the pesticide industry own the Environmental Protection Agency. When when I did the you know, I was on the trial team in the Monsanto case, which was like ended up with a $13 million settlement. Um, and we had three trials in a row, which we won all three of. And but we did a lot of discovery. And when we did the discovery, we were able to find secret papers of EPA that showed that the head of the EPA pesticide division for a decade uh, was a man who was secretly working for Monsanto. So Monsanto was actually directing his movements. And at one point, one of the emails we find, um, uh, he was trying to, that, that Monsanto instructed him to kill a study that was being done by his, another agency, the Agency for Toxic Substance Control, ATSDR, and, which you know about that agency. And it's a smaller agency that really focuses just on toxics that separate from, uh, from EPA. And so he'd always been able to control the EPA studies and to fix them. But now here's another agency that Monsanto has no control over that's actually going to do an independent study on the carcinogenicity of Roundup and glyphosate. And um, and they were desperate to kill that study. And he said, I'm going to kill that study for you, but you need to give me a gold medal when I do that. So these were the kind of correspondence he had with his true bosses which were Monsanto. And this, unfortunately, is true in all the federal agencies. I was in East Palestine, Ohio, last week. I have 600 clients in that, you know, with Morgan and Morgan in East Palestine. And, uh, you know, you know, whose lives have been upended by this train wreck. But they all understand why that train wreck happened. They understand because they've had that train going through for years without, you know, one engineer on it with a maximum penalty of $225,000. That company, Norfolk Southern, has, has weekly revenue of $1.5 billion. And for safety violations like what caused this train wreck, the most they can pay is $225,000. That's not even, you know, that's... Rounding error. Not even a rounding error. It's not even a rounding error. It's the rounding error of the rounding error. Oh, um, you know... Uh, the uh, th that agency DOT is run by the railroad. It's a wholly owned subsidiary. It's a sock puppet for the big railroads. And you go through each of these agencies in the federal government, and they have been captured by the industries they're supposed to regulate. And what that means is our democracy has been subverted because those are yes. where that's the that is the tire trap. That's where the tire meets the road at the agencies where. Where human beings, middle class Americans, have contact with your government is through those agencies, and those agencies are no longer working for you. They are working for these big corporations. There has been now a perfect merger of state and corporate power in this country. And what happens is, you know, everybody knows that the system is rigged against middle class and poor, and that we have gutted out. And by the way, among the captured agency, 
are the CIA and the Pentagon, which are have been captured by the military contractors. And, you know, they don't care how much the Ukraine war costs us. Nobody cares because they're killing Ukrainians, not American kids. So it's the perfect war for them. And we ship the money over $112 billion. And who gets that? It bounces right back. You know, a lot of it goes into Zelensky's pocket. And then a lot of it is bounced, most of it, almost all of it's bounced back here to General Dynamics and to all the military contractors. And then they have, the, they hire all the generals when they leave the Pentagon and give them retirement, you know, uh, signatures. And those are the generals you see on CNN every night, you know, gravely saying we need to defend the people of the Ukraine. But they're working for General Dynamic, stuffing their cash with all the money that we're sending over there. And, you know, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be helping the Ukrainian people or that, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is a thug and a gangster and a homicidal murderer. But we need to understand that we have intelligence agencies and military agencies that whose job it is, as Eisenhower warned, and he said the military industrial complex was going to destroy American democracy from within. And that those companies, those agencies, their job is to provide a constant pipeline of new wars that are going to feed the military industrial complex, which owns them. So you have now, look, we gave $112 billion to Ukraine already. The entire budget of CDC is $12 billion. The entire budget of EPA, I think, is around $11 billion. And you know we have uh, we have we have a crisis in this country, Joe. You know we have a cri- we have a child health crisis. Sixty four percent of our children have chronic disease, and we don't know what's causing it. We have kids who are going to dilapidated schools. We have our infrastructure falling apart. We have the middle class in this country has been hollowed out and destroyed. And we need to start paying attention to these kind of problems here at home and solving them. And what happens is you have politicians every four years who are talking like me. And, you know, they say, well, I'm going to get in there and fix it. But if they get up there and they see these agencies that, you know, are just these behemoths and they don't know how to fix them. And they, you know, they, they're not going to go in the weeds themselves. So they appoint somebody safe to run that agency. It's like Trump did. Yeah. Yeah. Like Trump, they all do it. You know, I mean, you know, I like Pete Buttigieg, but he's not, you know, he's not a guy who looks at that agency and says, I know how to fix that thing. And I know it's a captured agency and it's corrupt. And I'm going to weed out the people who are corrupt and I'm going to make the trains run on time and I'm going to make sure they have two engineers and I'm going to make sure they're using electronically controlled brakes other than the brakes that they used in the Civil War, which is what was on this train. And I'm going to make sure there's sensors on every wheel so the wheel heats up. You know, the engineer will know it and be able to stop the train rather than haul it for 20 miles with a with a flatbed loaded with PVC pipe on fire that they can they know it because they're looking at people's doorbell ringers, you know, the little telephones on your doorbell along the way. And they can see that thing was burning for 20 miles in the pot. The, the engineer didn't know it. 
And why is that? It's because we have a captured agency because the electronic brakes would have cost them $3 billion to put on their entire fleet. And that is two weeks of revenue for that company. But they rather spent the money on lobbyists to make sure they didn't have to do that. And then they took the cash and they did a stock buyback with it. So they all are getting rich. And the people in East Palestine are now, you know, drinking poison water and their cats are dying and their cows are dying. And their children are now, you know, exposed to dioxin. A single molecule of dioxin can cause cancer, all this kind of endocrine disruptor. It is, it is, people argue that it's the most toxic element uh, or the most toxic thing that we know, molecule that we know in the universe. That's not radioactive. And it is horrendously toxic and it's spread over the landscapes. It's so, incredibly long half-life too. It'll persist. Yeah, yeah, you get it in your body and 30 years from now, half of it's still going to be in your body. And it's it's rolling around causing inflammation and cause, you know, penetrating the blood-brain barrier, lodging in your brain. It's horrible stuff. And um, so what happens is Politicians get in there and they don't know how to fix these agencies. They may know how to fix one, but they don't know how to fix all of them. And mostly they don't even know how to fix one. They just think they can do it. And then they find out how powerless the president is because you can't go into an agency with 30,000 or 60,000 employees and fix it overnight unless you know exactly where the problem is. And so they appoint a guy you know, to run that agency, like, you know, who's usually from the industry, from the real industry, at least Buttigieg is not from the real industry. Or as Trump did, he appointed Gottlieb and Azar to run HHS, which is corrupt from the top to bottom. And, you know, those guys were pharmaceutical, were chosen by Pfizer. So, of course, they're not going to fix it. So they get up there, they choose somebody safe who will run, who won't rock the boat, and that guy does not fix it either. So he relies on the, you know, on the, the department heads and the branch heads within that agency. And they're all the corrupt people. And they've been there 50 years like Fauci. They know how to not to make a stink, not to, you know, make sure there's no bad publicity, that everything kind of rolls on time, that the industry's taken care of and nothing ever changes. And, you know, um, and then, you know, some of the politicians are even worse. They just get co-opted, you know, and they, uh, they, they're taking money from the industry and, they're, and they're, they become slaves to the congressional committee chairs who are all on the take from the industry. Oh, you know, I feel like I can fix this problem like nobody else can because I know how these agencies work. I know the individuals in these agencies who need to be moved to, you know, Nome, Alaska. And um, and the ones who have been doing favors who are in the tank with the industry, well, I know the databases that we need to open and make public so that independent scientists can do their jobs. I know, you know, how to um, stop the corruption in the universities by telling the universities you're not getting money anymore to do these phony pharmaceutical industry studies or oil industry studies. I know how to, you know, send my... Uh, Attorney General after the after the journals like the Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, and sue them for racketeering. 
saying you are not telling the truth. You're you're claiming to tell the truth to people about medicine, but you guys admit it's not the truth. It's pharmaceutical industry propaganda. And, you know, all of these agencies have that same kind of structure. And I've spent 40 years suing them. I've spent 20 years suing the United States Department of Agriculture for doing favors for Smithfield Foods, uh, you know, Tyson's Food, Bo Pilgrim, Cargill, Monsanto, you know, they are, they, it's a captive agency. You, you know, I started suing Smithfield back in the early 90s. Smithfield had, had you know, it had a, a senator in the name, uh, uh, named Murphy, who was in the, who was in the, um, in the North Carolina State Legislature. He passed 22 laws making it illegal to sue a factory farm. And he looked at what what, um, Bo Pilgrim and Tyson, John Tyson, had done to the chicken industry, which is they had come in, they had put a a million independent chicken farmers out of work in our country, out of business. And they had started raising chicken in battery cages and these little tiny cages dosing them with sub-therapeutic antibiotics. The chickens never see the light of day. They can't even turn around in that cage. They, they, uh, and then giving them growth hormones and sub-therapeutic antibiotics that cause them to literally lay their guts out over a short and miserable life. And in that way, they made themselves billionaires. They put out of business every independent chicken, egg, and broiler producer in America. And Murphy says, looks at that and says, you know, I could do the same thing with hogs. And he uh, and he passed, he was a Senate then, he, he passed 22 laws in the state of North Carolina that gave, uh, that made it, imp- that gave huge subsidies to anybody who wanted to be a factory farm, to convert to factory farming. And he, uh, and making it impossible for anybody to sue the farm, no matter how much pollution they put on your your land. And then he left the Senate. He invented a, a big warehouse called the Murphy, uh, the Murphy 1000, which you can put a thousand sows on that one little house. And he started, he went into business at Smithfield, which put a, a slaughterhouse that slaughters 30,000 animals a day in North Carolina. He dropped the price of hogs, Smithfield and Murphy, um, 65 cents a pound to two cents a pound. And it cost 32 cents a pound to raise that hog to kill weight. Well, it put out of business every farmer in the state who wouldn't sign a contract with or sell their land to Smithfield. So Smithfield ended up, they put out out of business 28,000 farmers and they ended up having 1,800 factory farms, replacing all those many farms and people, you know, on an entry level uh, uh, business for farmers. They they built these factory farms, um, which all they do is generate pollution. You know, they you put it out, a hog produces 10 times the amount of fecal waste per day as a human being. You put 30,000 hogs in a, in a in one piece of property they're producing as much waste as a city of 300,000 people and this is like on a half section of land so you know 320 acres of land and you're put you're producing that much that waste you you just have to dump it in the river 
or you dump it on your land and it poisons the land. And they started dumping it in all the rivers of, of North Carolina. And then their model, because it was so they were making so much money on it, it started proliferating and the Iowa farmers and everybody else had to do the same thing. And Smithfield ended up owning 80%, either owning or operating or contracting 80% of the hog production in North Carolina. What does Smithfield do then? It sells itself to a Chinese company. Well, now you have the Chinese controlling the American landscapes, controlling our food production, poisoning our land and water, and they don't give a damn. And, you know, this is the end of Thomas Jefferson's vision of a, of a you know, American democracy rooted in tens of thousands of independent freeholds owned by family farmers, each with their own, you know, stake in our democracy. And the food that they create is miserable. They have to dye the, you know, they, they want uniform work jobs for Walmart. So they have to, they have to do genetically engineered hogs that, you know, are just high strung and crazy. And they, um, and you know, a hog is smarter than a dog. You, what we're doing, the immense cruelty to these animals Know, raising them in these uh, these pens where they literally cannot turn around for their own. They never see sunlight. There's no rooting opportunities. There's no play opportunities. It you know that has to be something to the soul of a nation. Not only poisoning us, but you know destroying our um, spiritual links. I'm always amazed at the way you can spin these stories and facts and all the knowledge that you keep in your brain. It's pretty fascinating. But I wanted to get back to your run for the presidency. It seems like if you're able, that's a big if, uh, to capture the Democratic Democratic nomination, that you'd likely win because the Republicans are seem like they're headed towards uh, running two candidates this year. You know, Trump maybe is an independent and DeSantis. Uh, so they can probably self-destruct that, which makes a, the, auto, the Democratic nominee the winner. Um like they did with Ross Perot at the, in the past. Um, so I'm wondering, um, simple, I mean, with all the powers and control that they have and capturing all these things, and then you just look at what they, what Hillary did with Bernie Sanders, uh, that you could get the nomination. It's, it's possibly, cause it's clear that if you, you, as you brilliantly display, displayed, you have the pedigree, you have the knowledge, the training, the experience to go in there and make a difference. You're not making outlandish promises that you can't deliver on. You, you have the pragmatic strategies that you, that you can make this change, but the challenge is getting there. So do you think that it's possible to secure the Democratic nomination or is it just, I'm just curious. I, I do think it's possible. And I've actually been doing polling for a year or so. Um, and if I did not think that I could win this, I would not be running. And, but, you know, I agree with you that the powers of the Democratic Party are not going to are going to be against. Oh, you're, they're going to oppose you violently. violently. You, know, like, you know, Trump did that in the Republican Party, too. He ran right. against the right. party and he had enough populist support. So, you know, it, and Joe, I feel like I you know, I should do this and that it will give me a chance to talk to the American people. If people want to hear the truth, I'll win. Um, if they want business as usual or, you know, then I won't. But for me, it's irrelevant. I'm going to fight as hard as I can to win. 
I'm going to, but my only real concern is to leave this process with my integrity intact and my, you know, and my family, protect my family and, and have my integrity. And then, you know, I've done what I'm supposed to do. And if I didn't do this, I would, I would feel like it was an opportunity that I had missed that I might, if I can win, I can change things. And I know how to change things probably, you know, better than any uh, politician who's run in the last 20 years. Um, so- it gives me goosebumps to hear you say that. That is incredible. That is and really exciting. The challenge, though, is once you're in, and this has been the traditional issue, I mean, Trump had his issue. I mean, he, he had similar commitments and dedications, as you just mentioned, but he was inept with respect to implementing and maybe have been was real, at its core, core controlled opposition because he certainly was in bed with the military industrial complex for sure. Uh, so do, do you think it's possible as that, that there's enough power in the, in the presidency to make these changes, or you think that you would be blocked by the, uh, the Congress to implement them? Uh, I, I think a lot of the changes um, that I could make are changes that I wouldn't need the Congress for. How to restructure the the agencies, including the intelligence agencies, so that they begin to work for the American people and for actual national security, rather than what they've been doing. And you know, my father had a plan for reorganizing the CIA that I think is still relevant today. You know, I think there's a conflict in the CIA that uh, there's no accountability. So the things that they do, you know, the adventures that they go on, um, they don't ever have to account for. Um, you know, they overthrew Mossadegh in 1953, you know, the first democratically elected president or leader of, you know, Persia in 4,000 years history, and a, a guy who utterly loved the United States, but then he, um, you know, he decided to nationalize the oil companies and in order to share the profits of, you know, Persian oil with the people of um, of Iran. And he uh, uh, and the, and so Alan Dulles, who had re- who had represented Texaco, one of the oil companies that was going to uh, lose out in British Petroleum when he was a lawyer for Sullivan Cromwell, which had been his previous job. He and his brother, John Foster Dulles, had represented them. He uh, overthrew Mossadegh and replaced him with the Shah. And the CIA looks at that as a win. But 70 years later, we're still paying the price for that. You know, and all of these conflicts that we have with Iran are informed by the fact that the Iranians know that the United States of America, the emblem of democracy, the supposed protector of democracy, was the one who overthrew their democratic leader. And so they have very, you know, at the ground level, there's no faith in the United States in that country. And the Iranians of all the people in the Mideast outside of Israel should be American allies. You know, um, they're, they're, you know, much less doctrinaire and uh, they're very entrepreneurial and um, and very kind of interested in the outside world and engaged for, you know, they have a long history and a, a confidence that should have made them our greatest allies in that area. 
And instead, there are eternal enemies. And then, you know, you roll that out to the, the Syrian war, which was a CIA project because they wanted to build a pipeline through Syria to Turkey to compete with the Russians. And so we sent the, you know, we created ISIS, basically. And that drove, you know, two million refugees up to Europe and destroyed democracy in Europe and created Brexit and all these. And these are blowback. Um, CIA operations. The CIA overthrew um, Yakub Arbenz in Guatemala in 1954, and Guatemala is still paying for that. The highest homicide rate in our hemisphere. You know, the poverty, a country that should be fabulously wealthy. It just ne- it was shattered and never recovered from that. And so, we, you know, the, the problem is that the espionage. Um, aspect of the CIA, which is, you know, it was founded as an espionage organization in 1947 by Truman, and it wasn't supposed to be, it had no nothing in its charter that it would allow it to do kind of paramilitary operations to fix elections, assassinate leaders, uh, you know, kidnap, kill people, torture people. It wasn't, none of that was part of its initial mission, but Dulles snuck that in through, uh, through these uh, you know, these generous interpretations of some of their, the, the charter provisions. And but and then what happened, which my father recognized, is that the, you know, the plans division, which is the dirty tricks division, began, became the tail that was wagging the espionage dog. And the espionage function of CIA is, um, is should be oversight of the plans division. They should be kind of antagonistic towards each other. They should be looking over his shoulder and said, you know, that worry looks like it worked, but it actually didn't work. It actually, the blowback from that is much more expensive. So let's learn from our mistakes. And the problem with the CIA is it has never learned from mistakes. It never learns because there's never any accountability. I agree. And the CIA is, is a big core of the problem that you're going to be facing. And you present a very rational argument that that suggests you have a really good chance of winning the presidency and being in the white house but if you do achieve that goal what is your plan to address the caa because that's the criminal organization that took out your uncle and your father how are you going to avoid them taking you out i would say i mean you know i would do what i just suggested which is to break up the espionage functions of the agency from the paramilitary um, and, and maybe give that to another organization or break it out so that there is very, very strict. Um, uh, there's very strict oversight to make sure that every, you know, every action is measured against its blowback for many, many years. And it's the same thing you do with vaccines. But do you, th- do you think your was your uncle aware of this, that he, if he had made this, the change that you just suggested, would that have prevented his death? If he knew, was he, first of all, was he aware of this? I, your he knew, I mean, he knew from two months in office that the CIA was a huge problem. In fact, during the Bay of Pigs, Alan Dulles lied to him because my uncle did not want to do the Bay of Pigs invasion. And, and Dulles lied to him. And during the height of the Bay of Pigs invasion, my uncle came out of the Oval Office and said to Dean, uh, I mean, to um, uh, my McNamara, yeah. I want to take the CIA, shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. And then he fired Dulles 
and which was the, who's the founding, you know, director of the CIA. He fired the second in command, Richard Bissell, and he fired the third in command, uh, Charles Cabell. And so he knew they were a problem. And then he tried to get my father to take over the agency because he knew that it was the biggest problem in government. And my father said, my father refused, saying, you know, it would be inappropriate for the brother of the president to be running the big spy agency that's, you know, doing all this mischief and, you know, potentially uh, could be turned into a political tool. It just would be inappropriate for any democracy um, for the brother of the president to be running that agency. In fact, you know, when the, the CIA was founded, nobody wanted it. The Republicans and Democrats were just, you know, we cannot have a secret uh, spy agency in the United States. It's, it, it is, um, it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's inconsistent with democracy. They, at that point, the spy agencies were, you know, were the KGB and uh, the Stasi and the, you know, the uh, the Gestapo. And Savak, you know, all the, the these really bad organizations that were, you know, villains in every story. And they just said those agencies only exist in totalitarian regimes. You can't have a spy agency in democracy. It won't work. So people were always worried about it. You know, Truman ultimately relented and said, okay, they're just going to be providing espionage, which means not dirty tricks. It means information gathering and analysis to the president, to, you know, to make to make the good, better decisions on. But that's not what the agency ended up doing. The agency ended up, and by, and by the way, I want to say this. My impression is that 90% of the people who work at CIA are incredible American patriots. My daughter-in-law was a CIA clandestine officer for many, many years. And the people who she went through the, you know, the the farm school in Virginia and uh, and served with were incredibly courageous patriots who were willing to give their lives for to this country, for this country. And so I don't want anything I say to besmirch the character or reputations of the you know, of the majority of people who are serving our country and serving it well and bravely as members of the CIA, as, you know, employees of the CIA. So the the people that I'm talking about, and it's the same as you know at CDC, most people at CDC want public health. It's brave people in certain divisions, the immunization safety division particularly, which who are the criminals. And there's certain groups in CIA, you know, um, who are who have acted criminally and then enabled the criminals. And unfortunately, the top, you know, spy in our country now, Avril Haynes, is the uh, is, you know, is the chief enabler. She's the one that, you know, is now uh, Biden's primary advisor. And she's the one who covered up, you know, Guantanamo and covered up the, the hacking of the Senate, you know, real criminal activities, torture, all of these things that, you know, is uh, and her and her and Gina Haskell are, you know, were the ones who, you know, unfortunately, the top people, as in many of these agencies, are the people who were involved in the worst criminal activity and the most unpatriotic activity. I'm sure Avril Haines thinks she's a patriot. Uh, in my view, 
she's not a patriot because patriotism means a, a faithfulness to the United States Constitution, above all, above all. And if you don't know that, you shouldn't be in government. I really enjoyed this time with you today, and I really hope that you're successful in your campaign. I know we will be able to solicit a lot of support for you and donations to help you run your campaign. Uh, but in the meantime, you are the head or the founding member, or the, I'm not sure your exact position, but the, the, the defender uh, on children's health defense. Defender.com is your website. So people and it's a phenomenal site. I mean, you do. So, I don't know. You've got a great team over there. They produce so much good content to keep us current. So congratulations on what you're doing and, and uh, contributing to the education of uh, all of us in this these uh, crazy times. So I would encourage everyone to go there. Are there any other places you'd like to send people to for your? Well, yeah, people can come to go to my website, um, which is. It's teamkennedy.com if they if they want to. Team Kennedy, okay. Teamkennedy.com, yeah. And then childrenshealthdefense.org is, uh, you know, is the group that does the litigation and the defender is our newsletter, which we work very closely with you and we print reprint a lot of your stuff, which is extraordinary. You know, I, I was hoping on this, but I, I'll wait to the next one to talk about Matt Hancock and, uh, and all of the weird emails that have just come out that, you know, just are mind boggling from England, you know, where they're, or you have the head of the health department in England, you know, secretly telling his, his people, you know, is it, uh, we have to scare the hell out of the public. And uh, I think it's time that we reduce that, that we release the next uh, variant to, to, to scare the devil out of them. And, you know, that to me is like, uh, I don't even know what to do with that. All right. Well, we, perhaps we can schedule another follow-up and get, get an update on your, your candidate, candidacy. So, but thanks for your time. Thanks for everything you're doing. You're amazing. And I did not realize I would end this interview with a, a, an incredible sense of hope that there is a chance that you could do it. I don't know anyone. I mean, I never thought one person could make a difference because it's such a corrupted system. But anyone, you know, if anyone has the integrity, the commitment, and the pedigree to do this, it's you. Thank you very much, Joe, and thanks for all that you do. Okay. All right. Take care.